our lives and in the future still. Father, we ask you, as, as Gina's Uncle Billy is passing on, we pray, Father, first and foremost, that, that he would know you, that his faith, uh, that he would have this living hope in Christ by putting his faith in you to forgive his sins and give him eternal life. We pray for Gina and the rest of their family as this is hitting them hard, Father. Father, I lift up the servicemen like Chuck, uh, Chuck reminded us, Father. We thank you for people who risk their lives for our freedom. And we ask for protection, please, Father. Father, at the same time, we also pray for the people uh, in, uh, in Lebanon, in Beirut, where this explosion took lives, destroyed lives, leaving hundreds of thousands homeless, Father. Father, we pray for them. We pray for mercy. We thank you for ministries like Samaritan's Purse and others that, that reach out and help. We thank you for our Reach Global Ministries through the EFCA that's reaching out and helping them, Lord. I pray for my friend Don Johns, who knows people in, in Lebanon and who's done ministry there, Father. We pray for mercy, please, and for help and relief for them. Father, we, uh, we thank you for our young adults that you've blessed here at our church, and, and Josh leading our, our compass group and discipling them. And we lift up this retreat. We've got a lot of ministry going on next week, Father, with the, the prayer and preparation and with the, the young adult retreat. We pray, God, that that would have a, a deep impact on them, and like Josh said, Lord, maturity, discipling, disciple makers is what we want to see. Uh, from our young adults, from our kids, through all of us uh, adults as well. We ask that you would be at work to do that, Lord. Help us to know Jesus, follow Jesus, serve Jesus, and obey Jesus. And now, Lord, as we, we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you would speak to us, Father. Speak to us, that you would teach us, you would transform us, not just information in our heads, but transformation in our lives, so that we can live and walk as followers of Jesus. Please, Lord, we pray this now through Jesus. Amen. Uh, there's an outline in your program if you want to follow along. And again, I always forget to welcome, you know, we've got some people who are uh, at risk with their health, like, like Karen and Jenny and uh, Becky and, and others who can't be here. So I, I know you guys are tuning in, and we miss you guys, and I uh, hope you can be back with us soon. But we're glad everybody else is here. Uh, if you remember, a few weeks ago, we began looking at how Jesus invested in people. We saw that he treasured people, and we also saw that we can earn treasure in heaven when we invest in people like Jesus did. We saw last week that Jesus invested in lost people. And remember, we were in John chapter 4. We saw him engaging the woman at the well, and we saw that the power of her testimony helped people to believe in Jesus and trust him for eternal life. Well, this week is part two of this whole idea of investing in people using the testimony. And today, we're going to look at a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, and his testimony. And we're going to use his testimony as a template for us so that we can effectively share our testimony to help other people to believe. Now, before we uh, dig into Paul... In Acts chapter 26, let me give us some context here. Let's go back to the year 30 A.D. In 30 A.D., Jesus was crucified, and he died. He rose again, and then 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. After he ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit upon his disciples, indwelt the disciples, and then they began to testify. They shared their testimony about Jesus. 
And then thousands of people believed, and, and they began the church, the very first church in the year 30 A.D. Well, the religious leaders became threatened by this because the church was in Jerusalem. It started to grow. Many people becoming mature. It wasn't a perfect church, but it was a growing church that was making disciples. Well, the religious leaders began to persecute the church and to persecute the disciples and the followers of Jesus. And there was a very zealous and violent persecutor, and his name was Saul. He was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee, which was one of the religious leaders. And he began to persecute the different believers. One day in 33 AD, Saul was traveling to Damascus, which is in Syria, which is less than 100 miles from Beirut, by the way. And when he was traveling to Damascus, Jesus showed up and actually appeared to Saul. And he spoke to Saul. And Saul became converted. He became a believer. He became a follower of Jesus. Well, Saul went back to Jerusalem. He met with the disciples. He learned from the disciples. They discipled him, and he became an apostle. Now, what are the qualifications to become an apostle? Well, there are no apostles today. If somebody names themselves or claims to be an apostle, they're just wrong. Because an apostle, qualification, you had to meet with Jesus face to face. So his disciples were named apostles in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. We saw that a few weeks ago. And then Paul wasn't one of them, but he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So he became an apostle. Impossible for anybody uh, today to do that. Well, Paul started, after being spending time with the disciples, he started traveling to, Rome, or to Greece, to Turkey, and in these different places, he faced many difficulties. He faced challenges, but he also saw God's miraculous care for him and intervention. Paul returned to Jerusalem years later, and he brought an offering for the church there and also to report to the, the other disciples and apostles all that God was doing. Well, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they hated him at this point because he had opposed them. He was originally on their side. And so they actually captured him when he was there in Jerusalem. And uh, they tried to kill him while they were in Jerusalem. And when they tried to kill him in Acts chapter 21 and 22, he shared his testimony with the crowd. And then in Acts chapter 22 and 23, he shared his testimony with the Jewish leaders, the Jewish governing body, which was called the Sanhedrin. And then in Acts chapter 24, he shared his testimony with the governor Felix, and then in Acts chapter 25, he shared his testimony with the governor Festus. And now in Acts chapter 26, he's sharing his testimony with King Agrippa. The year is about 59 AD. Remember, Jesus died, rose, and ascended in 30. Paul became converted in 33. In 48 AD, Paul started going to Turkey and to Greece. And now it's about 59 AD, and he is speaking before this King Agrippa. He is in Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean Sea, and this is what he says in verse 1. King Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hands and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. They're accusing him. They want to put him to death. He is on trial. And especially, especially so because 
You are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me. What Paul's doing here is saying, hey, I know that you're familiar with what's going on. And I'm going to use words and talk about things that you understand because you're familiar with the Jewish customs and things. And what this does, it points out, when we're sharing our testimony, consider our audience. If I'm talking to somebody that has grown up in church and familiar with those types of things, I can use words that people who haven't grown up in church, they might not understand. But if I'm talking to somebody that hasn't grown up in church, doesn't know much about the Bible, uh, maybe has heard the word God before, but they don't have much of a background, then I've got to be careful about what I say. Because if you think about uh, growing up in church, if you grew up in church 20, 30 years ago, oftentimes at the end of a service, the pastor would ask people to come forward if you wanted to make a decision for Christ. If I'm sharing my testimony with somebody who's been to church before, and I said, well, at the end of a service, I went forward, they'll know what you're talking about. But if I'm saying this to somebody who's never been in church before, isn't familiar with that, they'll say, go forward for what? What's that all about? They might not understand. You and I probably know what it means if I say, I've been washed in the blood. Because that's a Bible term. That means I've been forgiven of my sins. But if I say that to somebody who's never been to church before, isn't familiar with the Bible, they would say, that's pretty creepy, dude. What is that all about? Washed in blood? I don't understand. So knowing our audience, like Paul does, determines some of the words that we use with people. Let's go to verse 4. The Jews all know, Paul's saying, the Jews all know uh, the way that I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, and they can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Notice what Paul's doing here. As he's starting to share his testimony, he's first giving his background. He's talking about, hey, this is my family. This is where I grew up, my country and in Jerusalem. Um, this is my religion. He's sharing some of his background when he's sharing his testimony. Verse 6, And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. Now, talking with somebody who's not familiar with the Jewish customs, they wouldn't understand this, but Agrippa does understand this. What does he mean for the promise that God had given his fathers? What promise is this? Well, if we go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, God promised a redeemer. God promised a deliverer. God promised a savior. They called him the Messiah. And Paul and Paul saying, I'm on trial today because of this Messiah, because I believe in this Messiah, this promise. Verse 7, this is the promise that our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul is speaking to Agrippa here saying, hey, you know that we believe this Jesus, you're familiar with Jesus, this is just 29 years ago that Jesus died. You know all about this. He died, and why should it sound so crazy that we believe that God raises the dead? Because you can't find his body. It wasn't that long ago. Think about it. If somebody tried to tell you that the Gulf War never happened. Operation Desert Storm, 1991, never happened. That's 29 years ago. 
I was alive then. We saw it on TV. We know it happened. You can't say it didn't happen because we've got proof it did. There was an accident in Soviet Union in 1986 called Chernobyl. I saw a great documentary about that. You can't deny it that it happened. It was only 34 years ago. I was alive then. I know it happened. He's saying here, hey, you can't deny this. It happened. It was just 29 years ago. You know it happened, Agrippa. Why should you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? You cannot produce his body. He's talking about the resurrection here. Verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So what is Paul doing? He's talking about his past, his background. This is who I was. This is what I did. Verse 10. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. I opposed it. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they, they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. As he's sharing his background, he's telling them about his dark deeds of the past. He's confessing some of his sins of the past. Now remember this, when we share our testimony and we talk about our background, part of that includes, hey, I'm not this great person. In fact, none of us are. We all have a problem called sin, and he's confessing some of his sins to them. I killed people. Verse 11. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. In fact, I was on my way to a foreign city, to Damascus, when I met Jesus. And he's telling them, listen, man, I was a bad dude. I didn't treat people well. I didn't treat people fairly. I put people to death. I was a bad dude. And at this point, he shifts his conversation and begins to talk about his conversion, how he met Jesus. Verse 12, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Let's take a time out here. What the heck is a goad? And why wouldn't Paul kick the thing? I, wouldn't, I don't know what it is, and if I had one, I don't know why I would kick it. So I was doing some research on this and some study of the Greek language. What, what is a goad, and what, what does this mean? And, and I discovered that this was a common saying in the Greek and Roman world, this kick against the goad. And what it meant was, if you refuse to kick against the goad, it means you refuse to believe in deity. You refuse to believe in God. Somebody who kicked the goad believed in God. If you refused to kick the goads, you, you didn't believe in deity and in, in God. And what Jesus was saying here is, Paul, why do you refuse to believe that I am God? Why do you reject me as the Messiah, the one promised to your forefathers? Why can't you accept that I am the, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God? I am God. You refuse to kick against the goads. And when Agrippa heard this, he was Greco-Roman. He understood this saying and what it meant. Paul was telling Agrippa, Jesus is God. I didn't believe it, but that moment in time, I believed it. I believe that he is God, so why should it be so difficult if he's God to believe that he could raise from the dead? 
He was attributing the deity to Jesus. And Paul at this moment is sharing the gospel with Agrippa. He's saying that Jesus is God, that the resurrection really happened. Verse 16, Jesus told Paul, Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me and what you will and what I will show you. And just want a little side note here. As disciples of Jesus, we have been appointed, just like Paul, to be a servant of Jesus and a witness for Jesus. That's our life, to serve Jesus and to be a witness, to testify, to share our testimony. That's what a witness does. And Jesus told him, verse 17, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. Because guess what? If you're following Jesus, you're going to make enemies. Not because you're a bad dude anymore, but because people oppose Jesus, they're going to oppose you. Jesus said, I'm sending you to them, to the Jews and the Gentiles, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul is sharing the gospel. Here's the gospel, receiving forgiveness of sins, being sanctified by faith. And sanctified means I'm being transformed. As I follow Jesus, I start to imitate Jesus. I start to become more and more like Jesus. My eyes are fixated on Jesus, and that transforms the way that I live. He's sharing the gospel with Agrippa. Verse 19, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and the Gentiles also. I went to them and I told them what Jesus told me to do. First, Paul talked about his background. Then he talked about his conversion. And now he's starting to talk about what's God doing in my life now. He said, I preach to those who should, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Again, he's sharing the gospel the third time here in his testimony. That is why the the Jews tried to seize me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. He's saying, listen, my life has not been easy since that moment when Jesus appeared to me. It's been difficult. The Jews have tried to kill me just now. God has helped me. He's starting to talk about what God is doing in his life now. And I stand here today and I testify. I'm sharing my testimony to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, going back to the resurrection again, he would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And Paul's done. Finished his testimony. Verse 24, at this point, Festus, who was there, not King Agrippa, but Festus is there. He's the governor of Caesarea. He interrupted Paul's defense. He said, you're out of your mind, Paul. He shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. He's saying, hey, believing that a dead man came back to life, you're nuts. That has never happened before. That doesn't happen. And then Jesus ascended into heaven. Then he came and spoke to you. Paul, you're nuts. You're insane. This never could have happened. Verse 25, Paul said, Hey, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. 
The resurrection of Christ is true. He's like, hey, we were all here 29 years ago. Show me his body, his bones. It's not there. It's true. And listen, we've got a great young people in our church, kids in school, out of school, in college, out of college. I want you guys to know it's true. You will have friends. You'll have teachers. You'll have professors that try to tell you it's not true. They'll try to say you're nuts and insane, but you're not. It's true, and it is reasonable. God's word is reasonable and true and trustworthy and reliable, and it's true. We can take it to the bank. Verse 26, Paul said, hey, the king, Agrippa here, he's familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him because he knows he was around 29 years ago. He probably investigated us too. He's familiar with these things about the Jews. I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. This was in Jerusalem. This was a big hub for the Roman Empire in Jerusalem. There was a big to-do about this. They can't find his body. He's alive, and people have seen it. And in 29 years, there are tens and tens of thousands of people around the world who believe in Jesus now. Agrippa knows. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And I love this. He doesn't just share his testimony, but he's asking Agrippa, hey, time to respond, man. This is true here. Paul is investing in people, investing in a lost person, in King Agrippa, and he's calling for a response to the gospel. Respond to my testimony because you know this stuff is true. Ten years ago, ten and a half years ago, uh, Stacy and I and our kids were serving Jesus in Haiti. We did a, a one-week trip where we were serving him there, adults and kids there, and we have a, a child that we sponsor. We've been sponsoring a child there since 1999, and we got to meet our boy. His name is McKendy. And we got to spend time with him and took some gifts to him. And before we had to depart and he left, uh, I asked him, McKendy, have you ever put your faith in Jesus? He was probably about 15 years old at the time. And he said, no, I haven't yet. I haven't converted yet. And we left, and then we flew out of Port-au-Prince, and 75 hours later, 2010, the earthquake hit. We were there the week before the earthquake hit, and we were troubled. Our hearts were heavy. We didn't know if McKendie was alive, and we didn't want him to be dead, but more importantly, it's like I had never done what Paul did and asked him, you know, McKendie, you told me you're not a believer. Would you like to become one today? What is keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus? You're going to a Christian school. Uh, you have this chance to go to church. We've shared the gospel with you in our letters. What is keeping you from it? Would you do that today? That's what Paul was doing, and I regret to this day. Thankfully, we found out within a month that, that he was alive, but we don't know if he's ever put his faith in Christ. And I should have asked him, like Paul did, would you like to do that? Verse 28, this is Agrippa's response. Agrippa said to Paul, you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? That's what Paul was doing with his testimony. Our testimony is to persuade people, not to coerce people or to manipulate people, but just to persuade this is what God's done so that they can become a Christian, so that they can repent, so that they can believe, so they can be forgiven and follow Jesus, serve Jesus, and testify to others about Jesus. That's why we do that. Verse 29, Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray that God 
that not only you, Agrippa, but all who are listening to me today, Festus and all these other clowns, that they too would, would become what I am, a believer, a follower, a disciple, a witness, a testifier, except for these chains, because he was in chains. And the rest of the story is Paul gets sent off to Rome to testify in Rome before Caesar. And then when he's in jail in Rome for the next three years, from 59 A.D. to 62, 63 A.D., he writes most of the New Testament. All these letters that he writes are to the churches that he started in Greece and in, in Turkey. And then he dies. He dies there for Christ. Before today, Paul gave us an example. He gave us a template um, of investing in lost people through our testimony. He shows us how to testify and communicate the gospel. And it's real simple. You can fill this out on your, on your outline. It really it starts with the background. Remember that? We share our story. Remember last week we said when we're talking to people about Jesus, we start by asking people questions about their life. Hey, tell me your story. Where are you from? What was your life like growing up? Where do you live? Where do you work at? What kind of things do you enjoy doing? Ask somebody their background, their story, and then, hey, can I share my story? And I begin with my background. What did Paul do in verses 4 and 5 and 9 through 11? He talked about his childhood, where he grew up, his family in Jerusalem and in the country. He talked about his religious background. He grew up in a Pharisee. He talked about the mistakes that he made. He tried to persecute people and arrest people and unjustly murder people. As you write out and communicate your testimony, you begin with your background. What was it like where you grew up, your family, religious stuff? The gospel always involves bad news. I have a problem, and I've sinned. We've all sinned, and there's consequences to our sin. Paul talked about his sin. We want to include that in our background. Here's my background. I'll share that with you. I grew up in a small town in northwest Pennsylvania town of about 400 people. I was one of six kids. I was second oldest. We were a logging family, so we grew up in the woods. As a teenager, I, I had a chain. I had my own chainsaw. I ran a chainsaw. I ran heavy equipment, a log skidder, front end loader, bulldozer, backhoe. I got to do that as a kid, as a teenager growing up. My dad loved going to the woods with my dad when I was young. Um, my dad was a workaholic six, seven days a week, had his own business. And then he had a nervous breakdown when I was 10 years old. And when I was 12 years old, that workaholic became an alcoholic and made our life very difficult. I grew up with a lot of personal insecurities. I wanted people to like me. I wanted to make, like every kid does, want to make their father proud. I wanted to excel in things in order to get approval. So I was pretty good at sports, and I just wanted to get approval. To get approval, I did and said foolish things. Um, I was really sarcastic. I was really critical. I was mean to people. I made fun of people. I would tease people because other people would laugh, and it would make me feel special and important and, and get approval. Many times, lied to my parents to get out of trouble. Lied to other people so that I wouldn't look bad. Um, I remember one time I was at a store and there was a Batman magnet sitting on the cash register. I forget what the price was, 79 cents? I liked that Batman magnet. Snagged that 
guilty afterwards. I never could use it because someone would know, where'd you get that magnet? Oh, I stole it. I went to church growing up, but I was really hypocritical. I would act one way on Sunday and a different way during the week. That's my background, where I'm from, who I am, what my family was like, and then included some of the dirty deeds. What we're going to do today, today is part of a, um, we're teaching but also equipping. I want you to take about 45 seconds, and on your outline or some paper you have, just sort of bullet point your background, helping you develop your testimony. Okay, so seriously, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to time this. Ready, set, go. Just some bullet points, where you grew up, what your family was like. You don't have to let anybody look at your paper to see what the sins are. Because we're going to have you stand up and tell everybody that later. Just kidding. Okay, a few more seconds. Get your bullet points. Okay, my conversion story, my story starts with my testimony, starts with my background, and then I share uh, my conversion story. Talk about Paul, talked about his conversion. I have a, a problem called sin. I have a need for a Savior. Verses 12 through 15, Paul explained his encounter with Jesus on the way to Damascus, how he met Jesus, how he became converted, how he believed in Jesus, the resurrected Messiah. He believed that he was now kicking the goad. I believe that Jesus is God, that he's the Christ, he's the Savior. And then he involved the idea of repentance in verse 20, the idea of forgiveness of sins in verse 18. Forgive the idea of faith in verse 18, and that's, that's how we convert, is that I repent of my sins, I ask Jesus for forgiveness of sins, and I put my faith in him and trust him and him alone to take away my sins and give me eternal life in heaven. Paul's circumstances and our circumstances of conversion involve three W's, the when, the where, and the who. When did it happen? Paul told about when it happened. Where did it happen? He told us where. And who helped him? It was Jesus himself. But, but when, how old were you when you put your faith in Christ? Where did it happen? Was it in church? Was it at home? Was it in your room? Was it at a retreat? Was it away at college? Where did it happen? When you were young? Uh, when you were an adult? Somewhere in between? Who helped you to do it? Was your mom, a dad, a pastor, a friend, a co-worker? The when, the where, and the who. For me, I was nine years old. Uh, my small town had a little Bible club that met in town. I lived about 150 yards from the elementary school, so I'd walk to school and back. It was winter time. I think it was the month of December uh, in northwest Pennsylvania, so there's snow on the ground. My brother and I took turns pulling each other on the sled to this after-school Bible club. And when we got there, um, there was a lady her name was Miss Donna Dute. I don't know where she's at today. Maybe she's watching online. I'd love to get in contact with her. She was our Bible club teacher, and she shared the gospel. Now, I'd heard it before at vacation Bible school, at Bible camp, at my church. I'd heard about Jesus. I'd heard about the cross and forgiveness and all this stuff, but it was this day that it all made sense, that I realized 
I'm a sinner. I've got a problem. And if I don't get it, if, if, if without Jesus, without putting my faith in him, I'm going to hell. And I didn't want that. So I asked him for forgiveness. So think for a second. The when, where, and who for you. Just take 30 seconds and write that down. When did it happen? How old were you? Where did it happen? You know, at, at a Bible club, at a church, in your home? Where did it happen? And then who helped you? Who helped you to do it? Was it a parent? Was it a friend? Was it a pastor? Was it just by yourself reading God's word and he spoke to you? The when, the where, the who. And what we're trying to do is help us all have a testimony so that we can share just like Paul. I share my testimony, I give my background, I share my conversion incidents, and that conversion time, it needs to include the gospel. Do you remember how many times Paul kept coming back to the gospel? He kept bringing them to uh, repentance, to forgiveness, to faith, those different things. We saw him do that in verses 18 to 20. And what is the gospel? The gospel is simply, I have a problem called sin. And I've already acknowledged that in my testimony. But that God provided a solution called Jesus. And if I ask Jesus to forgive my sins and give me eternal life in heaven, he will do that. And I put my trust and my faith in him alone to do that. And when I do that, I'm converted. I put my faith in him. And this is really important that we share this. Share this as part of my story. Did you see what Paul was trying to do? He was using his story to communicate the gospel to Agrippa to try to convert Agrippa. And again, we're not trying to force anybody or manipulate anybody. We're just sharing our story and asking God to use it to transform the people, to draw people to Jesus through that. That's why we do that. So your testimony and my testimony, it's a powerful tool uh, it was used last week in John 4 by the woman at the well. It was used this week by Paul in Acts 26. And it's powerful because it includes the gospel. If it doesn't include the gospel, it's just a story. It's just my life story. But it's my testimony It's if it includes the gospel, and that makes it powerful. And what do I share with my testimony? I talk about Miss Donna Dute, and I say I realized that the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And I realized that I was that because of my sin, I was doomed to hell. But through Jesus, I could have eternal life. How do we do that? John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And I try to include scripture. Remember we said last week that God's word is powerful and effective, and that will so I confessed, I admitted my sin, I asked Jesus to forgive me. He gives me eternal life in heaven as well as a, a God-led and God-involved life on earth where he helps. And that's what Paul said in verses 21 through 23. He explained, he testified how God was helping him. Remember in verse 22 he said, God is helping me as he faced difficult times and trials. So we conclude our testimony with my life with Christ, what's it like now? Uh, listen, our life is not easy. Our life is still difficult. I was talking to a friend 
on the phone last night, a friend from Montana whose mom is in hospice. She's dying, and I didn't know this, and he was letting me know and asking to pray for her. She was part of our church there, just a dear, joyful woman. She would, I coached her grandson in baseball. She would come to the game. She would come to church, just a great, great lady. And she, she's part of our services. She watches us online today. Life's hard. We get diseases. We get sick. Our bodies break down. Uh, a pastor friend of mine who's in his mid-30s just had surgery on Friday on his neck. He has some, um, some disrupted vertebrae and in pain a lot. So just a young man even. And life is difficult. It's not perfect. It's not charmed with everything going our way all the time. But our life is better because God is involved, because Jesus is not dead. He is alive, and he's involved in our lives. And like Paul said in verse 22, he helps us. And Paul would say, I'd never go back. I've had a difficult life because of Jesus, but he helps me, and I wouldn't go back. I would say the same thing. I would not go back to life without him. So when we share our story, we don't paint this rosy picture that's not true. You can look at TV and you see these preachers on TV that might say, God will give you every desire of your heart. No more pain. No more pimples and acne. No more diarrhea. Your marriage will be perfect. If you're not married yet, he'll give you the perfect mate. You'll get a raise and an increase in pay. You'll never struggle with sin anymore. It's not true. We don't paint this untrue picture. We are honest like Paul that there's still difficulties. They're trying to take my life, but God helps me. It's not an easy life, but it's a full life, a life that can have joy and peace and satisfaction in Christ. What's the rest of my story? What's uh, my life with Christ? I still faced insecurities, but God has helped me with that. I'm not a perfect husband, not a perfect dad, not a perfect friend not a perfect pastor, not a perfect man, but God has helped me to overcome a lot of those sins, and he's helped me to humbly repent of those sins when I still do them. He gives me good guidance through his word, through this life. He's made me more loving. Uh, He's walked with me. He has given me peace and joy and contentment. I want you to take another 45 seconds and just sort of bullet point, what is your life like now with Jesus involved? Whether it's joy, peace, forgiveness, contentment, difficulties, great things. Maybe he's given you a great spouse and you thank God for him and it's because of him that he's done that. Just write down a few bullet points there. senior in high school in 1985. I played sports and uh, on the basketball team. At the end of the season, you have uh, what they call senior night. The last home game of the season is senior night. Now, all the seniors get recognized. Their mom comes out on the floor. They give them a carnation to their mom. Uh, the coach tries to get every senior in the game. Now, normally, on a 12-man team, 
you have about eight guys who play every game, and you've got four guys at the end of the bench who only get in the game if you're ahead by a lot or if you're behind by a lot. But on senior night, you want everybody to get in. So what you really want is not to be behind by a lot. You want to be ahead by a lot to get these guys in. On senior night, we had a, we had a big lead in the fourth quarter with about three minutes left. The coach clears the bench. The seniors get in the game. And one of our last four guys was a friend of mine named George. George was five foot seven, so he wasn't the biggest guy, but George could jump. George was a high jumper on our high school track team. But on our basketball team, we had some guys who were 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, they could not dunk, but George could. Five foot seven, George could dunk. So all the fans knew it. They loved it. They wanted George in the game. So on senior night, George gets off the bench. He gets in the game, and the crowd starts to get a little electricity there. Ah, George. Hopefully George will get a dunk. And people are, the, the student body's excited. George is in the game. George is all souped up. He wants to dunk. And no kidding, within the first minute, George is playing defense. He pokes the ball out, probably like, Bob, you did 100 times when you played ball, pokes the ball out, and he starts to go towards the, towards the other end of the court. He's at half court. He takes one dribble. The crowd, seriously, is up on their feet. George is going to do it. They want to see the dunk. George is ready for a second dribble, and the referee blows the whistle. And you know what happens. He called a foul on George when he poked that ball out. Crowd's disappointed. You hear this, oh. George is disappointed because he takes the ball and he turns at that referee and he threw it at him as hard as he could and hit the wall. Thankfully, George could not throw as well as he could jump and he missed and hit the wall, thud, and then the crowd went silent. And you know what happens next. George gets another whistle, technical foul. Uh, coach pulls him out of the game. He's done for the night. Well, the next day we had practice because we still had a couple away games and before our practice at 5 o'clock, we were sitting in the commons area, the lunchroom, uh, doing our homework before practice. And I'm sitting there doing my homework, and George sits down beside me, and George said, hey, Joel. I said, hey, George. And he said, oh, man, Joel, I, I got to tell you, I swear I had a nervous breakdown last night. I'm like, no, nah, no kid, no kidding, man. I saw you throw that ball. I don't know what you were thinking. He's like, no, I'm serious. I had, like, a mental nervous breakdown last night. I said, really? He said, oh. I said, yeah, you know my girlfriend, Gina? I said, yeah, she's great. What's, what's wrong? He said, well, nothing, but her parents came to the game last night. I'm like, oh. And he said, yeah, that's the first time that I ever met them. I'm like, oh. And he said, I was supposed to go over to their house afterward and spend time with her, with her parents. I was supposed to. I'm like, oh. He said, yeah. He goes, I really seriously think I had a nervous breakdown last night. Man, George, I'm sorry about that. And then he picks up one of my pencils there on the table. See, I had some, a couple pencils and working with one of them. And I was a, a believer at that time. I was following Jesus. I wanted people to, to meet Jesus, know the gospel. And so I had these pencils that said on them, Jesus is my answer, on my pencil. George picks up my pencil, and he's like, man, this is what I need. I'm like, yeah, take it. I got plenty of pencils, man. It's yours. No, I didn't say that. He said, he picked, yeah, this is what I need. And I said, Yep. Went back to doing my work. I didn't know what to say. No one had ever taught me how to share my testimony. I didn't know what to say to George. That was in February or March of 1985. In April of 1985, I signed up for an evangelism training class at my church because I needed to know how to respond to George or to other people like him. I didn't know how to share my testimony, but today, hopefully now, we do. When we meet together this Saturday, we're going to write these out and put them in these
these boxes so we can share the good news like Paul did with Agrippa, we can do that with these families. Uh, there's a great verse, 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, set, across, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give a, an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this in gentleness and respect. When we know our testimony and can share that with somebody, we can be ready for instances like George and like others where we can give people the reason for the hope that we have. We can share our story. We can share the gospel with them. And what is that? We share our background, which includes some of our dirty deeds, our sins. We share our conversion, which includes the gospel. And we share what's life with Christ like now, how he helps us. So this week, here's a memory verse for you. I love it from Philemon 6. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. When I share my faith, it gives me an understanding of how good Christ is to me. It gives me a full understanding of everything. That's a good memory verse. And then this week, go back in the Old Testament and read Deuteronomy 1 through 6. And you're going to take note of different instances of God's redemptive story, his story of freedom from sin. And this week, Write out your testimony using this template of your freedom from sin, your salvation through Christ. That's our assignment this week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for providing for us uh, the gift of eternal life, that Jesus did rise from the dead, that he is God, that we can kick the goads because we believe that Jesus is God. We know it. It's true. King Agrippa was aware of it. And I don't know if he ever put his faith in Christ, Lord, but I pray that everybody that we come in contact with, Father, we can proclaim the good news. We can just simply share our story like the woman at the well did last week, like Paul did this week, Lord, that we can do these things and invest in people, invest in lost people like Jesus did, Lord. We thank you for the story that you wrote for us. We continue to look to you for help in this life because this life isn't easy, but you are good. Jesus, you are alive, and you walk with us. Make us, Father, make us into testifiers. Make us into witnesses of everybody that we meet. We pray all this, Father, through Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Lord, we hope you have a, a great week. Look forward to seeing you all next week. God bless you guys. Child of weakness, watching.